This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Esther, well, I just want to take a moment to point out that the historic events that we find here in this book, they actually took place around 60 years after a Persian king named Cyrus he released the Israelites from their Babylonian captivity. And, you know, there were more than 40,000 Israelites who immediately returned to Jerusalem at that point in time, followed by another 2,000 who ended up traveling to Jerusalem with Ezra. But then there were those who remained behind in Babylon and there in the Persian kingdom because they had grown accustomed to the land of their captivity. And by the time the events of this book began to take place, well, the Israelites who refused to return, they had already assimilated themselves into the culture of the Persian Empire. In similar fashion, you know, there are many believers in the church today who are also doing their best to blend in here in this wicked world. Rather than making an impact on our culture, well, these Christians would rather wear carnal camouflage so that they can avoid the relational conflicts that can occur you know, whenever the unbelievers around us discover that we actually believe in the Bible. Uh, now, if this sounds like your life, I encourage you to consider the example of Esther. You see, Esther was a young Jewish lady who was, you know, initially just trying to fit in there in the land of captivity. She was just trying to blend in with the world around her. But then came the day when she realized that the Lord was actually calling her to take a stand and fight the good fight of faith. And as we consider the way that she rose to the occasion, well, it's my prayer that we would all follow in the footsteps of Esther. Well, with this as the goal, let's turn our attention to this historic record, which is found here in Esther chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we read, After these things, when the wrath of King Azurus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, let's stop right here and consider this statement, after these things. After what things? Well, after the things in the previous chapter. Remember, it was in our study last week when we were first introduced to this Persian king named Ahasuerus, uh, who was the wife, uh, he was he, he, you know, actually, uh, he was the husband of his wife Vashti. And, and you'll remember that uh, when I mentioned King Ahasuerus, I also made a really funny joke about a surprise dinosaur called Ahasuerus. Nobody laughed. I went home and cried. I died a little inside and and, and I'm over it now, but... Let's move right along. It was back in Esther chapter 1 where we learned about the, the decadent party that this couple hosted there in Shushan. And after the king was entirely intoxicated, well, he decided that it was time to parade his wife, you know, before all of his inebriated buddies, and, and, and she refused, and good for her. You know, she refused to be the trophy wife, and, and she refused to, you know, just do what her drunk husband wanted her to do. When she refused, well, all the men drunkenly decided to remove Vashti from her royal position, and they banished her from the king's presence. And now, here in our text tonight, well, we find King Ahasuerus sobering up, and, you know, it was at that point in time when he sadly realized that he had banished his wife with a royal decree which could not be altered. It was all said and done. And as his drunken wrath gave way to sober reality, he probably realized that eh, he had overacted, over, overreacted a little bit. 
Unfortunately for him, though, there was no way for him to reverse the ruling which had already been recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes that Vashti was not allowed to come back uh, into his presence. Now, in light of this situation, I just want to take a moment to encourage every, every couple to realize that the worst time to make relational decisions and declarations is in the midst of a heated argument. In the midst of the heated argument is not the time to make relational decisions. Rather than, you know, raging against the marriage, it's, it's best to back away and calm down, get your, get your mind straight before you end up saying or doing something that you end up regretting the rest of your lives. You know, uh, we, we don't have the power to make official decrees and these sorts of things, and yet those words that you said, you can't take them back. They're, they're, they're out there. You know, you, you can apologize, but still, you said what you said, you did what you did. And so it's just best to just calm down and, and maybe just, just, you know, find a moment to just break away for, for a couple of minutes just to let cooler heads prevail. In light of this situation, I encourage every couple to realize that the, the, that the worst time to, to make these sorts of decisions is in the midst of the fight. And so we'd be, be, you know, we would all do well to just, just, you know, just calm down. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs 17. Uh, there he declares this. He says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Whenever a disagreement begins to become a heated argument, you know, th- this is the, the best time to just end the contentious conflict before it becomes the full-blown quarrel. Before it becomes just the, the full-blown fight, just, just end it. You know, there's times when, you know, Brenda and I, when we're, when we're in a, a heated conversation, you know, we'll just stop and say, hey, do we, do we want to spend the rest of our night here just arguing? And the answer is always no. So we just end it, you know, just we don't need to deal with this tonight, right? And listen, if there is a, an issue that you're dealing with that keeps creating contention uh, in the marriage, then it's probably time to seek marital me- mediation from a Christian couple who understands what the Bible says about God's design for marriage. The, the continuing conflict isn't going to be solved by the two of you. And so marital mediation from leaders at church is, is very beneficial. Sadly, King Ahasuerus, he sought the counsel of his drunk buddies you know, rather than spiritual leaders. And so rather than receiving the biblical counsel that would, that would have helped him to enjoy a happy, healthy marriage, he banished his wife, which is to say that he probably forced her to go and live with his concubines for the rest of her life. And instead of seeking marital reconciliation according to the love of the Lord, the king was encouraged to simply search for another woman who might please him. Now, with this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the carnal counsel that King Ahasuerus was happy to hear. And if you would look with me here, beginning at verse 2, because here we learn that the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Let, then let the young woman who pleases the, uh, the the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Yeah, this thing pleased the king. Imagine that. The king's servants here are encouraging him, hey, there's more fish in the sea. 
You know, you're, you'll forget all about Vashti as soon as you, you know, meet some of the other ladies around town. And they encouraged him to look for another queen who effectively would obey him. I mean, that's what he's looking for here, right? She didn't obey him. He needs someone younger and better looking who will obey him. And these servants who held positions of influence, they were quick to counsel the king, but, but rather than presenting him with biblical counsel, which would result in marital reconciliation, well, they just encouraged him to, to start the, the very first step uh, you know, towards finding somebody else, and they encouraged him basically to start the very first speed dating event ever invented. And in this way, they were encouraging him to just look for a new wife who you know, would please him. And in similar fashion, I'm sure that we all have friends and family members who are quick to give us carnal counsel the very minute they hear about the relational conflicts that are happening in our homes. How do they hear about it? Well, you told them. You went and complained to them. And then there's, there's like, well, hey, you know, there's more girls out there. There's more guys out there. Just here's some, here's some counsel for you. Much like the king who was pleased to hear the carnal counsel of his servants, you know, there are many Christians who are happy to hear the carnal counsel of those who don't have a clue about God's design for marriage. That being the case, every couple here tonight would do well to realize that our unbelieving friends and family members typically do not understand what the Bible says about marriage. And if you go to them with your complaints about your marriage, then they're not going to hesitate to offer you counsel, which is oftentimes in conflict with the word of God. That being the case, I encourage you, don't bring your complaints about your marriage to your unbelieving friends and family members. Instead, seek the counsel of mature Christian couples who you know, clearly have a handle on God's design for marriage. At the same time, I also want to address those who are resistant to marriage counseling. I oftentimes hear from a spouse who you know, calls the church and wants counseling, and, and yet their spouse isn't willing to come in to that meeting. Listen, if you're too proud to receive marital counsel from another Christian couple, uh, then you're effectively ruining your relationship as you pretend like everything's a-okay. And, and I've seen it happen. I, I've seen couples come in, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, pretending like everything's okay, and, and then you get a ways down the road and they're, they're heading for divorce. What happened? Well, they were pretending the whole time. Maybe one wanted to counsel, the other didn't. Regardless, they allowed their relationship to be ruined. And for no other reason than they simply wouldn't humble themselves and come and just receive marital counseling from mature Christian couples. That being the case, listen, if there's conflict in your house that you guys can't resolve, I encourage you to seek counsel from a mature Christian couple here in your own church. And, and, and listen, if your spouse is the one suggesting it and you're resistant, repent. Humble yourself and, and get the counsel that your spouse is asking for. Otherwise, you're just going to ruin your marriage. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 12. It's there where he declares, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Let me, let me put this a little bit differently. The person who thinks they're always right is foolish. I, I'm pretty sure that's most of us. And I know I'm right about that. 
The, the person who thinks they're right all the time is foolish. But the person who will humble themselves and allow wise counsel to uh, you know, alter the way they see things or think about things, that person you know, is wise. The Christian who will seek and receive biblical counsel will also receive the wisdom we need to make good and godly decisions. And this not only includes marital decisions, but it also includes parental decisions. And with this in mind, I, I want to turn our attention back to the events that are recorded here in Esther chapter 2. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 5. Here we read, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now here in these verses, we're finally introduced to Esther. You know, chapter one, no mention of Esther. You know, four verses into chapter two, no mention of Esther. You know, but then we finally get to the story of Mordecai and Esther. And uh, so we're introduced to Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai. And, and now we're, we aren't told why or, or how or when Esther, Esther's parents, you know, passed away. But what we do know is that Mordecai was the relative who was willing to raise her as his own daughter. It's also important to note here that Mordecai and Esther were both Jews who were living there in the land of their captivity. And it's for this reason that Esther, she also had a Jewish name, which was Hadassah. Now the name Hadassah, which is found there in verse 7, it's actually the feminine form of a Hebrew word, Hadass, which was the Hebrew name of their myrtle trees. And in order to grasp the significance of her Jewish name, Hadassah, uh, it'll help you to know that a myrtle uh, tree there in the valley was a symbol of the Jews who were under Gentile persecution and yet still cared for by God. That was the imagery of the myrtle tree. And one reason for this imagery was because the bloom of the myrtle tree was used during their sacred ceremonies whenever their priests were unable to produce the sanctified incense that they needed. So when they were exiled and removed from the land, they weren't making the, the sanctified incense that they would use in their, in their ceremonies. And so they, they would use the blooms of the myrtle tree as a substitute. And seeing how every Israelite there in Persia was using myrtle tree blooms for their incense, I'm going to guess that there were many Jewish girls at this point in time named Hadassah. It's also interesting to note that the blooms of the myrtle tree don't fully release their fragrance until they're crushed. You have to crush them in order to get the full fragrance from the bloom. And it's in similar fashion, and yet in a spiritual sense, that the fragrance of Esther's faith wouldn't be fully released until it was crushed under the weight of Persian carnality. And as we continue to make our way through this book, you know, we'll soon see how Hadassah would fulfill the spiritual significance of her Jewish name. Well, as for her Persian name, you might be interested to know that Esther was a, a proper feminine name, which means star. And while we aren't told who gave her this Persian name, well, it's my guess that Mordecai had given her this name when she was maybe just a toddler. And if so, then he was probably just trying to protect her from the anti-Semitic hatred, which was clearly an issue there in the Persian Empire. Well, regardless of how Hadassah received the Persian name Esther, what we do know is that Mordecai initially encouraged her 
to hide her Jewish roots. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Esther chapter 2. You would look with me there beginning at verse 8, because here we read, So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Now here in these verses we learn about this day when Esther was chosen along with an unknown number of virgin girls from the Persian Empire. And as we consider the way that Mordecai encouraged her to keep her lineage under the radar, well there should be no doubt that the Persian Empire was a place where anti-Semitism was a major issue. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that anti-Semitism is the word that we use when we refer to the prejudice that some people have against Jewish people. And it's sad to say that this is a prejudice that oftentimes results in hostility and violence. As we continue to make our way through this book, we'll soon see that Mordecai actually had a good reason to be concerned about those who were anti-Semitic there in the Persian Empire. And it's sad to say that anti-Semitism is still an issue here in the world today. Uh, If you're following the news at all, then I'm sure you're aware that anti-Semitism is once again on the rise, and it's sad to say. Well, we'll talk more about this in weeks to come, but for now, let's just consider how Esther was brought to the king's palace so that you know all these young women who were chosen might be prepared for the king's pleasure. And as we consider the way that these women would be paraded before the king after all of their beauty preparations, I just want to take a moment to share my concerns about the so-called biblical movies that are oftentimes extremely unbiblical. Uh, for example, you might not know this, but it was back in 2006 when TBN helped a oneness Pentecostal preacher, that's a a preacher that rejects the Trinity, his name is Tommy Tenney, Uh, TBN helped Tommy Tenney to produce a movie which was titled One Night with the King. Uh, This movie was actually Tenney's historic revision of this book of Esther. Uh, Yeah, he took the book of Esther, and rather than presenting the king of Persia as this political leader who was using his position of power to take advantage of these young women because he was a huge pervert. You know, Tenny here spins the story into this romantic revision of this night with the king that Esther enjoyed. And no, 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 this is, this movie is not only a historic revision of the story of, of the actual book, but it's filled with all manner of biblical heresy and mysticism. And it's sad to say that many Christians are quick to embrace any Bible movie that is advertised by, you know, uh, Christian marketers and, you know, we'll catch wind of the next Christian film that's coming along. We're all excited. Yay. It's a Christian film. Finally, a movie for us, right? Oftentimes wrong. For example, consider Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Uh, Passion of the Christ was based in part on the mystical writings of an 18th century German nun, you know, who wrote all kinds of heresy. And a lot of that heresy is found in Gibson's Passion of the Christ. And I guess the sequel's coming out soon. I wonder what's going to happen in that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I I don't trust Mill Gibson to be able to produce true Christian content because he reads, you know, mystical nuns who don't know what they're talking about. 
The passion of the Christ was a mixture of biblical truth and extra biblical heresy. And to me, that's very concerning. It's concerning when people take the Bible and then they mix it with some other stuff and make something else altogether. And Christians go, yay, and it's not yay. It's, it's kind of scary. The same is said for Roma Downey's movie, Son of God. I don't, you know, I don't think that was the Son of God there. And, and, and how about her miniseries, The Bible? You know, what's interesting is they took the book, The Bible, and they created a miniseries based on the book. And then from the miniseries, they created a movie. And from the movie, they created a book. So they created a book called The Bible, which was based on the movie of the miniseries of the book called The Bible. Now, how much got lost in all of that? A ton. A lot. Both Son of God and the miniseries of the Bible are both filled with errors and heresies that most people don't even catch. More recently, there's Dallas Jenkins' creation, better known as The Chosen. You know, Jenkins has confessed on a few occasions, especially when he's sitting on a Mormon podcast, because, you know, Mormons are helping him to produce this thing. But, uh, but he's sat on a few Mormon talk shows or, or podcasts and confessed that the Jesus that he is presenting in his series is no different from the Jesus that his Mormon friends follow. Yeah, that's right. If you're watching The Chosen, then you're watching a show where the creator is basically you know, telling us that it's the same as the Mormon Jesus. And listen, this, this ought to be very concerning, especially as we realize that Dallas Jenkins has no problem putting words into the mouth of our Messiah. And I personally take issue with any movie that puts words in the mouth of Jesus Christ. If you're going to have Jesus on screen and it's a serious kind of role that you're presenting as biblical truth and then you're writing new content for Jesus, I mean, you're effectively adding to the word of God at this point in time. Because the words of Jesus are the words of God. He only spoke what the Father told him to speak. And so now Dallas Jenkins gets to come along and put words into the mouth of Jesus Christ. This ought to be very concerning for every single one of us. And yet, it's gobbled up by a Christian audience like this is good entertainment. Listen, I would much rather watch a secular movie that has nothing to do with spirituality because at least they're not trying to deceive me with sort of biblical content. I know what I'm getting you know, when I go watch you know, the secular movies. I'm, I know I'm getting heresy, right? The Bible films are trying to present you with truth Meanwhile, heresy is being snuck in there because a lot of these guys don't know what they're talking about when they write these scripts. They don't really know what the Bible says, and yet they're creating new Bible content effectively. Mm. The day and age we live in is very, very scary if we don't have our guard up and if we don't fight the good fight of faith. The sort of deceptions that you find in these sorts of Bible movies, in my opinion, are way more dangerous because Christian parents will sit their kids right in front of it and go, watch this, you know, and they'll watch it and they walk away with ideas about the Bible that aren't true. And they don't know enough about the Bible to know that what they just saw really isn't true. Jesus really didn't say that. Well, as for the story of Esther, listen, this is not a love story like Tommy Tenney would have us to believe. This is not a romantic story. This was a Persian king who used his political power to increase his body count. That's all it was. 
He spent time with the most beautiful virgins in the land because this was counsel that was pleasing to him. And, and while it's true that this guy was guilty of abusing his position of power, it's also true that the Lord used the carnal appetite of this king to provide Esther with a position of power there in the Persian Empire. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now back to the text before us tonight. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 12. Here we learn that each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now this guy had a standard that's clearly unreasonable. You know, maybe six months of beauty preparation would be acceptable, but uh, 12 months, that's just insane. But uh, clearly this guy had high standards. But uh, so for, for 12 months, these women were prepared for, you know, being in the presence of the king. And in verse 13, they thus prepared each young woman, went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Well, here again, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at these women, you know, spending 12 months in preparation, which was required for these young women who were invited to spend just one night with the king. And while we don't know how many women were invited to spend the night with the king, what we do know is that the women who failed to please him, they were simply cast aside like human refuse as they lived the rest of their days with the rest of the concubines. This is not a good guy. This is not a romance story. This is a, a political pervert, a, a king with power who is manipulating uh, you know, uh, all these women. And it's sad to say that the world is still filled with guys just like him. I'm, of course, referring to every guy who has no problem engaging in sexual sins with any woman who's willing. And what's even worse is that the world is also filled with women who are happy to comply. Yeah. Both parties you know, are, 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 can be guilty here. And, and the proof of my point can be found in the true body count of every baby that's been aborted by the mother who wasn't planning on getting pregnant. Christian, listen, we now live in a day and an age where most people believe that premarital and even extramarital sex is just the norm. It's just the way of life. And as a result, close to 45 million unplanned pregnancies result in, in abortion. Every year, 45 million unplanned pregnancies result in abortion. And that's a world statistic. Not only that, but people no longer have a problem with the carnal contract that we call dating. You might not know this, but dating is a carnal contract. And the contract is this, that the couple remains committed until something better comes along. It's not you know, a courtship leading to marriage. It's just that eh, this, this person attracts me today and I'll continue with them until someone more attractive comes along. And that's how the world sees dating. And as a result, most dating relationships end up with at least one person being cast away like human refuse. Singles, please trust me when I tell you that worldly dating is nothing more than divorce training. That's all it is. Worldly dating is nothing more than divorce training. 
Because you get into the habit of, they please me today, and six months later, eh, not so much. Let's get rid of them and find somebody else. Well, that's just divorce training. It's for this reason that I encourage you to seek first the kingdom of God, and as you seek to know the good and perfect will of the Lord, he'll guide you to the right person at the right time. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. That's a promise. That's a promise that Jesus made. And I guarantee he'll fulfill it. Unfortunately for Esther, she didn't really have a say in the matter, and yet the Lord was also working in this very situation. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Esther chapter 2. Let's pick up our study, beginning at verse 15. Here we read, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Asur, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Not to be confused with Easter, this was the Feast of Esther, and, uh, and, and yet they were giving gifts, so it was, a, it was a party. King Ahasuerus, though, he's falling in love, not with Esther, but with the beauty of Esther. King Ahasuerus fell in love with the beauty of Esther. The rest of the women, well, they were kept as the king's concubines and sent to stay with the rest of the concubines, unless, you know, he you know, called them by name and they were able to come forward again. But for the most part, they just went and became a king, you know, one of the king's concubines. And Esther ended up being crowned queen of Persia. Not only that, but King Ahasuerus also proclaimed, you know, this holiday as he celebrates. What is he celebrating? The carnal conquest, which was essentially a search for the most attractive virgins in all of the land. Yeah, that's what he's celebrating here. I sampled all the most attractive virgins and I found the one I liked the most. Let's have a party now. With all this being the case, King Azarus didn't really fall in love with Esther. No, instead he loved the beauty of Esther. The proof of my point is found in the fact that he didn't have enough time to experience her personality. He, didn't, he wasn't like trying to get to know her. And seeing how he had forced her to take part in this twisted beauty pageant, you know, he, he couldn't be certain that she was even interested in him. He didn't care if she was interested in him or not. It was all about what he wanted. Not only that, but listen, he didn't have a clue about Esther's Jewish heritage, nor did he know anything about her faith. As a matter of fact, look with me again there. We'll begin reading at uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 19, where we learn that uh, the, the, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the ga- uh, king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. And here in these verses, we learn that the king, he didn't know that Esther was Jewish when he crowned her queen of Persia. And while I realize that Esther here was withholding this information, 
Well, I'm also certain that the king wasn't spending his time interviewing these women about their past and about, you know, their families and about, you know, these sorts of things. No, he was simply hosting his own, his own version of The Bachelor. That's all he was doing. He was the bachelor and he surrounded himself with women that he wanted to check out. Now, I've personally never watched an entire episode of The Bachelor, let alone suffer through an entire season of this nonsense. Oh, but there are many who think that this show is romantic. (laughs) I just, I can't wrap my mind around this. But yeah, there are some people who think that this show is romantic as they watch this single guy treating a gaggle of gals like a used car being taken out on a test drive. So romantic. Who's he going to give the rose to? The Corvette? Well, clearly, I mean, so romantic. Our society is so corrupt that they can look at a show like that and think, romance. And it's just, it's nonsense. God help us that we might help the next generation to see the value of their virginity. You know, a lot of young people don't understand the value of their virginity. That it is the most valuable thing that a young person has. You know what young people, you know, young people don't have valuable things. But their virginity, their sexual purity, is extremely valuable. And yet we have a culture today that encourages them to just give it away. Just give it away to the first person that comes along. It's a twisted culture that we live in. And we would do well to protect our kids, much like Mordecai wanted to protect uh, Esther. But this as the goal, we must not fail to notice how Mordecai was a man who then immediately started taking part in the politics there in Persia. As a matter of fact, look with me, uh, beginning there at verse 21. Here we read, In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Hazarus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Mordecai's concerns for Esther, leading him to go and sit within the king's gate. Just to be clear about this, uh, it's important to understand that the king's gate or or the gates of the king, this was the place where the political leaders would go and make decisions. It's for this reason that the the king's gate was the place where influential people would go and gather together in order to influence the policies and the politics of Persia. Would that be the case? Well, I have no doubt that Mordecai, he became extremely interested in what was happening at the king's gate. Why? Well, because his daughter... His adopted daughter is in the king's palace. And now she's a part of this whole political system in a way that he had never intended. And so rather than sitting back and doing nothing, he immediately goes and starts sitting there in the gates of the king. 
so that he could be an influence in the political system. As soon as he heard about this assassination plot, he immediately inserted himself into this world of Persian politics in order to protect Esther from those who were about to harm her new husband. Now, in light of his example, I believe that every Christian has been called to get engaged in the world of politics. And if for no other reason than to protect our kids. If for no other reason than to protect our kids from the progressives who are currently using the public school system to promote every form of sexual immorality. You might not know this, but many schools here in America have libraries that include pornographic books. The average kid in most major cities can go to the school library and check out books that contain pornographic content, including images and illustrations. And all these books were paid for by taxpayers. And, you know, I've watched several videos of of concerned parents going into the school board meetings and reading the content of these books And showing the pictures and getting shut down by the school board because you can't bring that content into this school board meeting. Yeah, but it's in your school library. If it's not acceptable for a school board meeting, then it's most certainly not acceptable for a school library. And yet, they can't make sense of this. Why? Because we have a carnal, corrupt world that we're living in. You know, there are schools where the faculty is not only leading our kids to question their gender identity, but they're ready to help them transition, allegedly, from one gender to the other. And in some cases, this is is being done without parental approval. The parents are clueless that this is even happening. Yeah, this is happening in our country. And again, all being paid for with our taxes. And meanwhile, the church is filled with Christians who don't think it's our job to, you know, legislate biblical morality. I mean, it's not our place to tell people that they have to believe the Bible. Well, they think it's their place to tell us that all this sexual immorality is okay. Please trust me when I tell you that if we, church, don't legislate biblical morality here in America, then the progressive left is going to legislate their carnal immorality. And they're already pushing it into the school system. Much like Mordecai, it's time for the people of God to sit at the king's gate. Because this is the time in which we live. You know, there may have been a day and an age here in America where we didn't really have to get involved in politics. And, well, how did that turn out? We're at the end of that road now, aren't we? It's time for the people of God to sit at the king's gate so that we can influence the political system which is currently educating our kids with all kinds of corrupt lies. It's time for the church to shine the light of the Lord on those who are trying to normalize all manner of sexual immorality and, yeah, even pedophilia. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 5 where he declares, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. 
But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. No doubt the days that we live in are evil. And the world is filled with evil people who are engaging in the unfruitful works of darkness. And while I realize that it's so much easier for us to all sit back and travel the path of least resistance and not rock the boat, and this isn't the path that the Lord Jesus has called us to travel. We've been called to be soldiers for our Savior. We've been called to fight the good fight of faith. Christ Jesus has called us to walk in his holy light and to to walk in his light in such a way that we would expose the unfruitful works of darkness. But this as the goal, I encourage every Christian in closing to redeem the time that we have. And the best way to do this is by first realizing that we haven't been called to blend in with this wicked world. We haven't been called to try to just comfortably, you know, get along, go along to get along type of thing. That's not our calling. We've been called to shine the light of the Lord on this dark world so that we can expose those who are evil. Don't allow yourself to get too comfortable with this carnal culture. Instead, we have to stand with our Savior as we share the gospel of grace. We need to call people to repentance and the remission of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will achieve a grassroots revival as more and more sinners are saved by faith in Jesus. And in this way, the Holy Spirit will help us to fight the good fight of faith. And as we fight the good fight of faith, we will overcome evil with good. Let's pray.